Please open the scriptures to Luke chapter 15. We look at that in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the fifth petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Luke 15 has the three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And you'll have to decide which of the two sons is the lost son. Luke 15 at verse 11, give our attention to the very word of the Lord. Then he, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to our far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. And therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. God's holy word. If you would open the Forms and Prayers book to the Church's Confession on page 256. You come to Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a a summary of the Bible's teachings, page 256 in that smaller Forms and Prayers book. We're approaching the end of the Catechism here. 
And it's asked now in our study of the Lord's Prayer, what does the fifth petition mean? And why don't we answer together? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means, because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us, wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Should we ask the Lord to bless his word to us? Heavenly Father, who teaches us to pray through Jesus Christ, would you cause your name to be hallowed and your kingdom to come even this night as we sit beneath your word? We pray, Lord, that you would visit your people through the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that your spirit would do that great work upon our hearts of imparting to us the riches of our Savior. May he take of Christ and declare him to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last time, brothers and sisters, we focused on our calling to pray for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And we noted that bread is symbolic of all the necessities of life, right? Whatever we need for our bodies, food and clothing and homes and jobs, all these things we call life's necessities. But as we come to the next petition now in this prayer that Christ gave us as a model prayer, we see that what we have here is even more necessary than bread, isn't it? Forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. We need food for the body, but we need forgiveness for life eternal. You can, you can live eternally without bread, right? If you die a martyr's death or starve to death, you might still live. But, but if you have plenty of bread and die without forgiveness of sins, you die eternally. And so God, he may cause people to go without bread, but he never calls them to go without forgiveness. If we lose bread for our bodies, we may die for now. But if we can't lose our guilt before God, then we will die forever. And so Jesus, in all of his mercy to us, when he says you may pray for your needs, and it's, it's quite a wonder, isn't it? He stoops down and invites us to pray for bread first of all. We who are so consumed often with our, our needs that are before us and weighing upon us, and we, we think about them, he says, go ahead and pray. Give us this day our daily bread. He lets us start there. But as soon as we've prayed that, he adds, and forgive us our debts. He doesn't want us to miss the even more important thing. Because if you had all the food in the world but did not have forgiveness of sins, what would you have? The English Puritan Thomas Watson, who, by the way, I should acknowledge his his, uh, teaching on the Lord's Prayer and on this subject tonight has been a great benefit to me and I make use of that, but he, he, he pictures a man, you know, a, a condemned man, a man condemned to die, and maybe you bring some food into prison, as they did back in those days, his days, or maybe we think today of somebody getting their last meal, but, but what is that food, what is that bread to a man who's condemned to die? It's hardly a comfort, and yet we live in an upside-down world where, where many people think that the things of this life are comfort. We even talk about comfort food, and we, we know what's meant by that, don't we? We we're often, we, we feel comforted to, to eat things familiar and delicious to us. But it's really a short-sighted comfort. 
if we fill up on the things of this world, but don't have peace with God. Remember in Luke 16, we have that story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, it said that he feasted extravagantly every day. Every day he had all the delicacies he could want. But in the end, he's looking up from hell. Forgiveness is essential. There's no life without it. And so Jesus teaches us, not just that he's died for our sins, but he calls upon us to call upon God to appropriate that, to ask for that, to receive that. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's look at that tonight. First of all, we need forgiveness. Secondly, God gives it willingly to us. Thirdly, then it will produce an evidence in our lives that we will forgive others. Well, forgive us our debts. Obviously, you can't ask for forgiveness if you have nothing to be forgiven, right? If you've paid off everything you owed, then you don't go to your brother and say, would you forgive me what I owe you? You don't owe him. You don't go to the bank and say, would you forgive my, my, my loan? Not if you've paid it off. So to pray for forgiveness of debts is to acknowledge we have debts. We have debts. Christ is a great financial counselor, and he tells us that you have enormous debts, debts you cannot pay. And it's interesting that, that Jesus describes sin here as a debt. A debt is an unmet obligation, right? A debt is an accumulated, an unmet obligation that you have. And we are indebted to God from the very beginning. We, as creatures, were indebted to our Creator to give Him full love and obedience, to serve Him with all zeal. And when we didn't meet that obligation, then we became indebted to the judge. Because God says, if you won't give me your life, then you owe me your life. And I will take it. You are indebted to me. Now the parable of the prodigal son here. We meet a son who, who doesn't think about what he owes to his father in any way, does he? He's oblivious to that. And all he thinks about what his father owes him. Give it to me now, father, I want it. And it's rather shameful, isn't it, that he doesn't covet fellowship with his father, relationship with his father, but just money, possession from his father. Demands from his father, but has no desire for his father. And, and in that way, we see something of the ugliness of our own sin, don't we? That, you know, sin is not debt simply in terms of a numerical calculation. It's not simply a number. You know, how much debt do I have? Here's the number. But our debt is a, is a moral wrong. We have sinned against a person. It's not just what have you done, but who have you done it to? We have, we have sinned against our maker, our God, our father. We've despised him. We've been careless about this relationship. Our debt began in the garden when God gave us everything, even his own love and fellowship. And he equipped us in his own image to know him and to love him and to serve him. And we owed him then lives of obedience. Our lives were on loan from him, as it were. But Adam and Eve, they said, no, we'll take what you've given us and we want more. And so they followed the way of Satan. 
And into the world came sin, original sin we call this. The, God visits the judgment now of, of a sinful heart upon all their posterity. And he visits Adam's guilt upon all of us. We are all guilty in Adam. We're guilty before we've committed our first sin. We're already guilty because of our representative, our forefather, Adam. But then we also commit our own actual sins, don't we? And we rack up the debt. Personal sins of commission that we do and omission, things we've left undone. Wicked deeds we have done and righteous deeds we left undone. We have secret sins and we have public sins. We have deliberate sins and we have sins of ignorance. We have sins of our hands. We have sins of our lips. We have sins of our minds. We have sins of our emotions. We have sins of our hearts. We have sins against men and we have sins against God. It's a lot of sin. Two great commandments are to love God with all of our heart, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we've broken those by what we've done and by what we've not done, and so our debt is enormous. And debt doesn't go away if you label it differently, right? You've got a big debt. You can call it something else, right? You've $10,000 in credit card debt, and you, you rename it. It doesn't make it go away, and yet... In our society, sin has been renamed, right, as a, a miscalculation, a sickness or disease, a mistake, a common thing everybody does. doesn't change the reality. Debt is outstanding. But when God, by his Holy Spirit, comes into the hearts of his people, he convicts of that sin, and he exposes that debt, and he brings us low before God, to see how ugly the debt is. Talk a lot in our culture over the past years about all the debt, right? There's home loans the past decade that haven't been paid. There's credit card debt. There's college loans and all these things. But the, the greatest debt, the worst debt, is never talked about, the debt that we owe to God. And it is the worst debt. It's the worst debt for several reasons. Thomas Watson gives a number of them. Let me name four of them. Number one, it's the worst debt because it's an assault against the greatest being, the infinite majesty of God. To sin against a king might be high treason, but to sin against the almighty creator of heaven and earth is even worse. And so we have to say to God as we look upon our sin, I have I've assaulted you, I've attempted to dethrone you, I have sinned against you, my creator. But secondly, sin is a terrible debt because it's the debt that we're most unable to pay. We're completely unable to pay. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 130 says. And it's just a completely unpayable debt. There's, there's no currency we have or can get a hold of by which we can pay this down. Not a penny of it. We have empty hands. But third, it's the worst debt because it's an eternal debt. Every other debt you have in this life, you know, there's one way to get out of it. You can die. But not this debt. This is a debt that follows you into the next life. God has told us that all debts will be collected. All debts will be collected. Every sin will be paid for. And finally, it's the worst possible death because it brings debt, because it brings the worst, worst possible punishment. In the Bible times, you know, if you had a debt, you might be thrown into prison, but... 
But the debt we're talking about tonight will land a person in eternal torment. And so Jesus, by calling us to pray, forgive us our debts, is calling us to acknowledge our sin. To acknowledge that we have nothing and no way of escape on our own. To confess our sin to God. But he does that telling us that God is willing to forgive it. And that's the second thing that we see tonight. God willingly forgives the debt of those who call upon him. Now, it's really an astounding prayer. I know, I know it doesn't shock the socks off anyone here tonight, probably, right? Because we've, we've heard it. Hopefully, we prayed it. We're quite familiar with it. But if you just have to back up for a moment, this is, this is an astonishing thing, isn't it? Jesus, he says, when you, when you see this debt that you owe to God, don't, don't come with those words of Matthew 18, Master, be patient with me and I will pay it all back. It's not what Jesus tells us to pray. He doesn't even say you ought to pray, Father, could you adjust my debt? If you could just downscale it a bit, then it might be more manageable and I could make payments on it. But Jesus actually says, just go before your father and ask him to wipe the whole thing out, to pardon you for all of it, to release you from the entirety of it, and to hold nothing at all against you. That's astonishing. I mean, if you back into someone's car in the church parking lot, I'm sure they'll forgive you, but probably still want your insurance company. What is this? A full pardon. Now, we might think Jesus is just unaware of how great our debt is, but that's not it, right? Jesus knows how great our debt is, but he's on the way to pay it for us. He's on the way to the cross when he teaches us to pray this prayer. What a glorious thing. He teaches us this prayer not as one who is ignorant of our wickedness or our great debt, but as the one who is laying a foundation for us to offer this petition with the certainty that God will hear it. And Christ gives us this wonderful parable in Luke chapter 15 of this prodigal son and what some have called the prodigal father, who's lavish in his love and grace upon the son. Because the son who, who in effect had said to his dad, you know, I was really wishing you would have died by now, but since you won't die, can I just have my inheritance? And when he's come to rock bottom, here's a Jewish boy feeding pigs. It's really the epitome of hitting rock bottom, unclean pigs. He determines to return home to his father, and yet his repentance at first even seems flawed, right? He's not going to ask for a restored relationship with his father. He's just going to ask that he could have a job. Maybe he's hoping that by being faithful, he can earn the right to ask for a better relationship or a better job. Sometimes we, we change this fifth petition around a bit. To say, God, just give me time. I'm going to do better tomorrow. Just give me some space. Just maybe lower the debt a little bit and I'll work at it. 
But look what Jesus says in Luke 15, 20. And the son arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What a, what a marvelous thing. Now, the son, by this extraordinary love, seems to be led to a full repentance. No more talking about just being a hired hand. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father is lavishing grace upon him. Here's a, a son who has nothing by which to repay. He is a complete shame to the family. And yet he's clothed in robes and kisses and restored as a son by the father's glad, not begrudging heart. And he's welcomed back into fellowship. And it's really a wonder of the gospel, isn't it, here? That, that, that our Father in heaven is presented to us in these terms. You've heard it said probably that, that fathers in that culture didn't run. They didn't run. Older men today probably don't run, not too much. There's a few of you who are still running hard. But, but especially in this culture, you didn't run. To run... For a man of rank and position to run was, a, was an indignity. It was shameful. He had to pull up his robe. Maybe his underwear would show. He'd go sprinting off to greet this son. I read of a Chinese man who wanted to paint this picture. So he, he painted it of the father standing in the doorway as the son afar off is approaching. And he showed it to his Christian friend. His Christian friend said, no, you got it all wrong. He's supposed to be running to him. And the Chinese man said, no, no Chinese father would do that. He said, that's the point. Not a human father, but the father. So when the Chinese man painted the picture the second time, painted the man running to his son, and he uh, had on mismatched shoes as if he was in such a hurry. You see, now he's getting it. Father throws off all restraint. That's my son. And he runs to him willingly and gladly. And this is the picture of the gospel Jesus gives to us. Not a father who begrudgingly has to be talked into it through our pleadings and our commitments and the amendment of our life. But before we can get the words out, he's already running to wrap his arms and to show grace. Odd it is that we would be slow to ask for forgiveness then and find greater comfort in comparing our lives to someone else, right? Strange how slow we are to come back to our Father. There's nothing in us to find confidence in, not the basis of our own good character, not in comparisons to other people's failures, we may not even find confidence in how many times we've prayed the prayer for forgiveness. We come with empty hands to cling to this cross of our Lord Jesus. We come praying, as we say it in the catechism, because of Christ's blood. Christ's blood. Do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. We come asking for grace. We come asking for what we don't deserve. We come asking for unmerited favor towards us undeserving and demeriting sinners. And Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. God is full of grace. To think that the eternal Son of God has not only given to us permission, but has commanded us to ask his Father for a complete pardon. And to do this every day, staggering. The language in Scripture expressing forgiveness is so varied and rich and textured and luxurious. You could come up with all kinds of phrases and images in Scripture, right? Let me mention a few. Number one, to forgive sin is to take away iniquity. Job asked God at one point, why do you not take away my iniquity? Or literally, why don't you lift up my burden? Picture a man who's weighed down. Picture Picture Christian in Pilgrim's Progress with a, with a load on his back. And forgiveness is that God lifts off the burden. He's able to do that because Christ took up the burden. Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Forgiveness is also spoken of in the Bible as covering over sin. Psalm 85, you forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. Now, God doesn't cover in the way we're prone to cover, with flimsy coverings of excuses or lies or attempts to sweep it under the rug. Remember Adam and Eve, of course, they had their flimsy fig leaves, right? That was, that was their attempt to shield from the radiant splendor of the holy God. And what did God do? He said, no, 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 that won't do. And he killed an animal, clothed them with skins, and gave them the covering that comes by the shedding of blood. God has provided the real covering for our sins in the blood of Christ, and that's what atonement is. It's a covering for our sin. And thirdly, forgiveness is spoken of in the way of blotting it out. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Picture a creditor, a store owner who has a book of charges and he decides just to scratch them all out. Watson writes, he draws the red lines of Christ's blood over it and so crosses out the debt book. The book of Colossians, you know, tells us about the, the, the debt written against us. It says that Christ took away that debt and that, that law code, that ledger of our sins was nailed to the cross. But that Isaiah 43 I just read also talks of remembering your sins no more. God, who forgets nothing, chooses not to hold them against you. This is what forgiveness is, right? It's to release you. It's God saying, I won't charge you with this anymore. I've pardoned you. And that brings us to Micah, where we read, You will again have compassion on us. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. One more picture. That's a great picture. We're not talking of hurling them into the depths of a sea like a body that might resurface, but hurling them into the depths of the sea like lead weights that sink to the bottom and are unrecoverable. Forgiveness. Colossians 1 says, He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Do you realize the other kingdom that we used to belong to is one in which there is no forgiveness? Kingdom of Satan, there's no forgiveness. But we've been conveyed into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in which there is the forgiveness of sins. And so we're to take comfort tonight that Jesus has not only paid our debt, but he teaches us to appropriate it, to receive it, to call upon God, and to in faith accept this. And there's no limitations other than repentance and faith, right? There's no sin that's too old, no sin that's too big, no sin that's too shameful, no sin that's too ugly, no sin that's too small. But the Son of God in our flesh is telling us to pray for forgiveness. This is the central theme of the gospel, isn't it? The forgiveness of sins. You don't get past this. This isn't for children and you need to grow up and out of this kind of thing. This is, this is it. To ask for forgiveness of sins based on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Have you done that? I've had occasion in my life to do a few funerals for unbelievers, or maybe I should say of various obvious unbelievers, self-confessed unbelievers. I can tell you that when I do those funerals, I never think about what they ate last, about what bread they had, but I'm often horrified at the thought of us being gathered around their corpse and where their soul is now. Forgiveness of sins is everything. Do you have that tonight? Are you certain you have that? But you humbled your heart before God and asked for the most needful thing in all of the world. Father, forgive me. Forgive, pardon me, cancel out my debt. Sometimes it's asked, you know, why, why do we have to keep praying this? I thought justification, when I believe on Jesus Christ, that all my sin is canceled out, past and present and future. My standing before God is is perfect now. I'm justified, I'm accepted, I'm declared righteous now and forever. That's true. That's true. Well, then why should I ask for forgiveness? Well, you see, we have to distinguish, don't we, between our legal standing before the judge and our filial relationship with our Father. Before the judge, everyone who's believed on Christ is perfect in God's sight. All sin is forever pardoned. But in terms of our relationship with our Father, every sin we commit is, again, an offense against the relationship. My children, I hope they all have confidence that that they're not going to get kicked out of the house tonight. Hope they they know they won't be kicked out tomorrow, that that they have security in the hall. But I hope they also know that that if they blatantly disobey their Father, they're there needs to be some reconciliation now. They need to say, Dad, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? 
And that's the way it is with our Father. We stand secure. We won't be disinherited. We are his people forever. But when we sin, it affects the relationship. And as those who love our Father and want to glorify him and want to live close to him, then we ought to be quick to keep short accounts with God and to come back and say, Father, forgive me, that was wrong. And he, well, Jesus already told us, Luke 15, he is the most open and willing Father to forgive. This forgiveness is not based upon our worthiness. We are unworthy, and God knows it better than we do. But we're invited to, as the Puritans said, to renew our repentance by daily praying, Father, forgive me. And if we do that, if we live by that petition, then there will be glorious fruit in our life. And some of that great fruit is a forgiving heart. That's the final thing we look at, the evidence of forgiveness that is so wonderful. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's how you should pray, Jesus said. And he, with the second half of that petition, was not giving us the reason to bring before God that you should forgive my sins because I've forgiven. That's not what he's saying. Nor is Jesus teaching us to think, forgive me my sins in proportion to how much I've forgiven others. And I've forgiven, you know, probably 80%, so give me 80%. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying teaching us to say, Father, forgive my debts because I'm your son, I'm your daughter. And that's evident in my life that I live like you. I have a forgiving heart. Lord's Day 51. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Now, if we don't have that evidence, then... That's not okay. In fact, it's downright scary. Because Jesus says after he gives to us this model prayer in in Matthew chapter 6, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That could be frightening. You know, in Luke 15, you have a lost son who returns, but you end up with another lost son, don't you? The older son is ashamed, isn't he? Maybe he heard about how his father went running off to the son coming back, and he's embarrassed by his father. He's certainly angry. I've been slaving for you all these years. I've never done anything wrong. And you kill the fatted calf for him, slime ball. What does that reveal about the son's relationship to his father? It was the relationship of a slave to a master. He didn't love his father. He hadn't been living in the grace of his father. Jesus tells that horrifying parable in Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant where he's forgiven his enormous debt no one could ever hope to pay. And he runs out to grab somebody who owes him five bucks. 
throws him into prison. What is it to forgive? It's as our brother or sister returns to us with repentance that we pardon them and say, I hold it against you no longer. And I might even wake up tomorrow morning and be angry, but I'm going to keep my word and not charge you with this. I'm going to put it out of my mind. I'm not going to speak to anyone else about it. I release you of your debt, and we are restored. And even if someone does not confess their sin, we're called to have yet a loving heart and a forgiving spirit in which we do everything possible to be reconciled, that we stand ready to forgive them fully, even though because they won't repent, we can't enjoy the fullness of forgiveness at this point. But you see, if our life is marked by bitterness and grudges and a vindictive spirit and retribution, then Jesus says, then you haven't experienced grace. Because if you experience grace, it makes you gracious. And if you've never given away forgiveness, then you have to ask yourself, have I ever received forgiveness? But where the gospel's at work, we discover that we are the ones who owe the insurmountable debt. And as our fathers just wiped it all away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can't even stomach the thought that we'd be unforgiving to all those who owe us so little. Forgiveness is a glorious gift. It is the great gift of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's ours to enjoy every day just for the asking. So don't hide from your father this week. Don't run from him, but run to him. Don't be slow to come back because you've asked too many times. Christ has given you a model prayer for daily praying. Pray it again. Pray it tonight. Pray before you go to bed. Pray it when you wake up. Pray it throughout the day. Father, forgive my debts. And thank you, O God, that I see your grace at work in me. Because I find that though I fail in forgiving others, and though I still struggle at times, For those wrongs done against me, I know in my heart that I want to forgive. I know it's right, and I see your Spirit convicting me in that way. You've made me, God, a forgiving person. Praise be to God, and thanks be to God for such a prayer, such a Savior, and such a Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. What a gracious God you are. What an amazing thing that we may simply ask for this, bringing nothing to you but our dirtied selves. Father, how we thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes this all possible. And we pray, Lord, that you draw us quickly to yourself as Satan seeks to ruin our consciences. We pray that we would come quickly to you to find forgiveness and that we'd rest in what you've declared to us through your Son that you forgive all those who sincerely ask. And Father, we pray you help us in forgiveness. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, we don't forgive perfectly. And we do still wrestle at times. Pray, Lord, for those who, who wrestle in special ways, difficult ways. We pray you grant release, that you grant the grace to make that commitment, to charge it against 
another no longer. Pray be quick to forgive one another, quick to confess our sins to each other, but above all, quick to run to you, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.